Welcome once again into the Soccer OG. Hey, that's me, Max Brett. This is episode 73. As always, a gentle reminder to please rate, review, download, subscribe, and tell a friend of our podcast here. Leave a review. Put it on my social media, Twitter, Max Pareto Sports, and we'll get you something nice. We'll get you something nice. We need those reviews. Appreciate all those who've already done so and left a five-star rating. It obviously makes a big difference, but we're making some headway, and I know people are really pumped in because we're talking about the international window, specifically the USMNT, who coming off a scoreless cero a cero tie with Uruguay. Another positive result to take away from this, the most important stretch pre-World Cup. This is it. You got two good opponents and the U.S. walk away. Like if it was a World Cup, you could say they walked away with four points. So joining me in the business end will be Charles Bohem, who writes for MLSsoccer.com, also covers USMNT. We'll talk about being on the road, covering the national team. We'll also get his thoughts about what happened in Kansas City and did some guys win over the coach, win over U.S. soccer to get themselves on the plane to Qatar. Coming up later in stoppage time, I'm going to give you what would be the biggest stories at the World Cup. What could realistically happen and be the biggest story? The story that the networks would do backflips to cover and would draw in the largest audience of soccer fans as well as neutrals. We will talk about that. There are a few out there. There is one that has, for me, cleared all others. I'll let you know what that is in stoppage time at the end of the show. We have a lot to cover, so let's get going. Where you been? Hope you're enjoying the international window. There's a lot to absorb. By the way, Nations League. Nations League is going to begin for the CONCACAF Nations for the United States. It is June the 10th against Grenada in Austin, and then June the 14th, I believe, against El Salvador away. It is hard to get excited. Now, <laughs> this week, you turn on the European Nations Leagues and you're getting France versus Croatia. You're getting Belgium versus the Netherlands. And you can see while the Nations League is not doing favors for countries in places like CONCACAF, especially in a World Cup year. I mean, this is absolute golden for these European teams South American teams are getting great games all over the planet, which is even better news. You know, Mexico played Uruguay and Ecuador. USA played Uruguay. Brazil is uh, doing a world tour. Argentina got Italy in La Finalissima. And then they got Estonia. And we'll talk about that later, too. It's just a huge edge, especially in a World Cup where we don't have these many games coming up. And look, Canada. By the way, Canada has a shot in their group. You know, we saw Belgium play in Croatia. These are two nations that are obviously extremely talented, but still very reliant on the old guard of their golden generation. That old guard is getting uh, old. And when you look at the history of World Cup, the teams that get caught are those that are on the back end of a generation. We saw it in recent years with Spain. How if there's see, they went through the whole recycle. And now they are back. Famously, when Italy were the World Cup champions, remember in 2010, they didn't get out of a group that was very agreeable. I think it was Paraguay, New Zealand, and they didn't get out of the group. So the back end of the cycle is where you catch teams. And I think Croatia and Belgium are both on the back end. So for Morocco and Canada, an opportunity. But Canada, after they canceled Iran, or... That game wasn't going to happen. They rescheduled to get one game in this window for against Panama. Obviously, Iran, geopolitically, with you look at the history, recent history of those two countries, doesn't make a lot of sense. Even though you'd like to see sports and politics separated, but just you can't. The emotions are running too high. And then Panama, and then the players decided to to walk out on a uh, a stance of a shot against the federation, equal pay. And while it's a wonderful gesture, it's, it really just showed the inefficiency, the, the problems that may keep Canada grounded despite this incredible generation of footballers. So you have to, you don't want to see that, right? You don't want to see that in this critical time. Where is Canada going to get games? You need games. You need games, even if it's like a glorified practice. You need games. And that's why these European teams have a huge leg up. 
wasn't just Nations League. We also had World Cup qualifying. I'm looking forward to the Intercontinental Games coming up. Nice, bright and early for, uh, was it New Zealand and Costa Rica? We'll take a peek at that. You might have known the result of it by the time we finish this, listen to this podcast. We had the big World Cup qualifier, Wales and Ukraine. And I, I, I don't want to be prisoner of the moment. I don't want to go overboard in saying this, but I, I went through my mind to see what would be a bigger story uh, than Ukraine making the World Cup. There's not many. Remember the success of the Asian Cup of Iraq? That kind of would go up there. And there's a few other instances. There was a, someone on Twitter brought me up to it. And I wasn't familiar with it, but when Libya made a breakthrough or Liberia made a breakthrough, I should say, uh, when they were going through uh, a lot of political strife. But this Ukraine thing, I mean, this is a, the World Cup, right? This is, this is not the Asian Cup, all due respect, or the AFCON. This is the World Cup. And while Ukraine are a team that have made the World Cup once before and they've made some Euros and had success, because of everything that has happened, because of players within the Ukraine football that are fighting on the front lines, because the coach wanted to fight the front lines and was told he was too old, this, to me, would have moved it right to the top. Sunday in Cardiff, Wales beat Ukraine, and now we know Wales will be in the group with the U.S. The U.S. will ha- open up with the Welsh. I'll talk to Charles Bowen in the business end about that coming up here in a few minutes. And I thought, you know, and I thought John Champion did a really nice job pivoting from the Ukrainian story to the Welsh story because it's a very good one, too. Wales is a small country, overshadowed sport-wise, certainly football-wise, by England. They play rugby there. That's their national sport. They play soccer, but it's it's had some good moments. They made the World Cup. It was in 1954. It's the first time they've been back. And they've made a couple of Euros, but this is the World Cup. It's obviously a different kettle of fish. It's a tremendous story. Was Ukraine a better story? 100%. And I see people just devastated about Ukraine not getting in. Can't believe it. And I feel so bad for those guys. Yeah. Yes. But let's... Let's be honest here. This is the beauty of the World Cup. It's nothing is promised to anyone. And to say Ukraine, because of what's going on there, and by the way, they have much bigger issues on their hands. Uh, It would have been nice to have the escape of a World Cup, but that's not going to be a priority on this. It's nice, and you would wish they would have that, but it didn't happen. So I don't know if I feel, to say you're absolutely devastated for them is... I don't know if it's completely sincere because Ukraine, I mean, they came so close. They've got through the Scots and it looked like it could happen. They, they, they fell into the Welsh trap and they got the, the, the goal against the run of play. And that was that. But Ukraine should be very proud of what they have done. And now hopefully they can focus on getting their country back. Because you could see the weight on these players. And it was it's uncomfortable at times when you see it because you just feel so bad. And you go, Where, how do they get in the headspace for this? Either way, it wasn't meant to be. It was not meant to be. And uh, Ukraine and the fans there will still get a lot of joy of tuning in and watching the World Cup. Just like all of us will. Because why we, many of us are lucky enough to have a rooting interest. Even when your team isn't in it, you can't take your eyes off of it. Italians will watch the World Cup. Chileans will watch the World Cup. El Salvadorians will watch the World Cup, even though their country is not in it. So uh, the right teams are there. We're going to complete the field very soon, which is a very satisfying feeling because it's been going on for so long. But Wales now in the group with the United States. That'll be the first opponent on June 21st, June 25th. England, June 29th, Iran. I have said it before, but I'll repeat it now that we know the opponent. The most important game for the United States is the first one. The first game, you win that, and you are on your way. You are on your way. You will get help from England in those other games, I can assure you. But if you win that game, certainly if you tie it, it's not terrible. Can't lose it. Cannot lose it. Heading into that England game, because you could see your World Cup hopes stamped out at the very early stage by June 25th. Everything is on a very... Very marginal, very thin, thin shred of glass. So the United States will see how they fare there. I think they should be the favorites against the Welsh. It's going to feel like they're playing against a CONCACAF team the way they play the lower block. 
So they're going to have to break that down when they look so liberated playing, certainly against Morocco to a lesser degree, Uruguay. But I love how the U.S. grinded out results here, right? That's uh, how you do it in the World Cup. So plan accordingly. So much to talk about, but we got to leave time for our guests. Make sure you stick around on Stoppage Time, where we will talk about the best stories to see at the World Cup. Make sure you check out the Soccer OG on YouTube. I have a new video out there about the USA-Uruguay game. Uh, it's under my name, Max Bretos. Check out the past library of Soccer OG podcasts. I see a lot of you are doing it worldwide. I look at all the data. I find it fascinating. I love doing it. But coming up next, it's the Business End with Charles Bohem. Don't go winner. It's the Soccer OG. Back here to the Soccer OG, we are now entering the business end and thrilled to welcome in one of the, the great writers we have covering the game here in the United States, Charles Boehm. I, I, I screwed up your name already, Boehm. No, no, you got it. You're doing great, Max. And, and the check's in the mail with an intro like that, for sure. <laughs> I lay it thick, dude. I lay it thick. <laughs> but it's accurate. <laughs> Listen, I, I, don't, I don't have no ham and eggers come on this podcast. I only have heavy hitters. <laughs> No, I, I haven't got time for the this cute little conversations with someone who's not in the know. I go to You're the meat potato. Bretos, man. <laughs> I remember, I actually remember, was it with the All-Star game? Uh, you popped around, you're like, Max! And I saw you and I was like, oh, it just brought back so many good memories. And it's, uh, I've, I've, it's very, I, I really appreciate the time I've had to spend time with everyone covering the game here, whether it's with MLS, with, with the, the national team. And it's good people. By and large, it's good people. We have a couple bad eggs, I'm sure. I don't know who they are, but I'm sure they're out there. But by and large, we have guys that are covering the game that mean well and work their tail off. And Charles is certainly one of the most for MLSsoccer.com and USsoccerplayers.com. And you were covering the team. And this is, a, this is you know, we, we talked about this window. And maybe I oversold it. And I, every time I tweet something about either a U.S. game or maybe it's Argentina or it's one of the European teams in Nations League. And I'll get a response and they say, well, it's not that big of a deal, man. They're, they just finished the season and it's and they're tired and they're obviously thinking about other things. And I go, well, they don't have many more games to prepare for the World Cup. So I, I don't think it's so flippant. How do you see that? I mean, how big is this window? We could start about the US, but just worldwide because you know these opportunities to get time together is very rare. I think we, um, we are applying terms like ter overused terms like unprecedented nonetheless are important here because we've the with the with the the way in which fifa uh in their wisdom awarded these world cup rights um the the shift from a summer tournament to fall um the the covid 19 pandemic various sort of impacts on on many aspects of the game but in, in this case specifically the uh you know the compaction the compacting of the qualifying schedule you know all these different factors are putting have put us in genuinely new territory. I mean, we've done all these cycles for decades now, but this one is truly different because the rhythms are just off. And you know, this if we were in, in a normal World Cup schedule, we everybody would have named and submitted their final rosters for the tournament somewhere around a week or two ago. And you know, you'd be on the send-off series, you'd be doing your final touches. But but actually, with the way that this is happening in the middle of the European club season with a November, December tournament, you have uh, the, the, the same number of games left, basically, right? You'd be able to spend weeks together in June uh, and May leading up to the tournament, and then you'd, be, you'd have momentum and familiarity and, and at least know a lot about your team. Greg Berhalter and other national team coaches around the world, the, 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 the cup finalists, are having to, to kind of feel this as they go in terms of, you know, how they evaluate players, you know, looking at individuals, looking at partnerships, relationships on the pitch, little tactical tweaks. I mean, they're going to get a couple games in September. Um, we've got reporting yesterday from Daniel Nord that the U.S. is going to play, uh, is at least in deep in negotiations to play Saudi Arabia and Japan in Europe in, in September. But then that's it. I mean, the, this game for the U.S., is, this game in Austin on Friday against Grenada is the last home game before they go off to Qatar and play play World Cup games. So it's it's uh, it is a it is a big moment, even if it doesn't quite feel like that. And all due respect to Saudi Arabia and Japan, and I know we go through this practice to mimic one of the groups, one of the teams in our group, and obviously Saudi Arabia is there to do that for Iran. And I, it, you you enter a weird uh, 
you, a weird world where you you can compare these countries just because they're close to each other or from a similar region. But still, it's worked in the past. But with all due respect to Saudi Arabia and Japan, you're not going to get the quality that you did against Morocco and against Uruguay. So this was the two. Now you have the Nations League, which may help a little bit. I mean, you can you can probably answer better than I can, but how many questions are going to be answered in those games between Grenada and uh, El Salvador? However, Morocco, which star-studded, Uruguay, which started their B team but ended with their A team, and their B team is pretty good. I mean, Darwin Nunez is among many others, and Maxi Gomez at the top, really highly rated players, uh, Matias Vina. This is, this is as good as it gets in any friendly from the beginning of last year. I mean, they played Wales, they played Northern Ireland, played Switzerland. Morocco and, Morocco and Uruguay give you a real World Cup feel. I mean, this could be, that could easily be your group, really. Yeah, it's, and it's, it's, the players were so excited about it because they've had relatively, you know, a, a lot of time together, but because of the pandemic, relatively little of it has been available to, to play games like this. And, you know, and this is just a, it's, it's also, I think, a, a uniquely or somewhat uniquely CONCACAF problem. You know, the, the style of play, the rhythm of play, the, the relationships with opponents and the sort of balance, the sharks and minnows is just different here. And that leads to a you know, different style and different challenges. And so it's always been a challenge, I think, for U.S. teams in the modern era to find a way to grind through the regional, you know, um, <laughs> mill of, of qualification and then pivot relatively quickly to playing against world-class opposition, very different styles, you know, some of the world's best players in that extremely pressurized environment of the World Cup. So it's always been a challenge for the U.S. I think we maybe got a little uh, out of practice with, with missing out in 2018. Um, but this has been, I think, taps into some of the deeper questions that we've been batting around for a decade now in terms of, you know, when the U.S. M&T's desire to, to rise up into that really kind of that final step into the upper echelon of consistently uh, elite programs, which is a really small group, and it's very hard to get into. Feels like there's some knocking on the door. I, these games certainly did not deter that. By the way, I was going to ask you this earlier. Are you surprised that we're still on this trajectory to the World Cup, having to squeeze everything in? The calendars in Europe, maybe MLS, it, it's easier to deal with because of the end of the season, and then you go right into the World Cup, and then you start it up. Obviously, MLS, it looks genius with the way their schedule is set up based <laughs> for this singular World Cup. But are you surprised that we're, I mean, there's obviously been some hitches, but teams are getting their games in, and everything is kind of falling into place where these European leagues will stop, they'll go to the World Cup, and we'll get back to normal. Do you think, I mean, it's, I, I thought this would be a nightmare logistically, and it still is, but is it, am I, am I overselling it a bit that it has been smooth? Maybe it hasn't been that smooth. I mean, maybe we can say that FIFA, um, one fringe benefit uh, for, for FIFA is that um, we're all just so glad to be uh, at least in the vicinity of, of something that we think looks like normal when it comes to international soccer after, you know, more than a year of, of very little of that because of the pandemic. And so yeah, I think we'd probably be griping a little bit more if we if we were taking this all for granted, like we usually would be at this point. Um, but it's fundamentally odd. I mean, the, the and, I, and I think we can, you know, at some point, hopefully there's already been many books written about th this, this whole era, um, this whole process, you know, yeah, yeah, it seems like ancient history, but, you know, the, the, uh, the sort of unprecedented, strange, and ultimately, I, I think we can say now unhelpful way in which they awarded two World Cup hosting rights at once with Russia and Qatar. Um, of course, we know there's widespread reports of uh, skullduggery and, uh, and questionable ethics in how, in how the, uh, the rights to this year's tournament were, were pursued and won. Um, and then sort of, it's sort of like over time, it's been this small sequence of, of cuts uh, where we, we move, you know, moves from, from summer to fall. And then there's steps to placate the television networks as a result. We all sort of get our heads around this. We realize that this is happening, however ill-advised many aspects of it may seem. It's we're now to the point that here we are, and um, I do think that that competitive balance has been has been impacted. And even the scheduling of the World Cup itself, you know, the U.S. were unlucky in the sense of of one element of the draw, not so much the opposition, but the timing. They they basically lose out on a week. I mean, they start almost a week ahead of some of their fellow World Cup teams. And that's an enormously influential, potentially, in this time frame we're talking about, 
influential extra bit of prep that some of these teams get just with a quirk of the schedule. I know Greg Brohartler was, you know, remarking that he didn't love that. They, they've got less time even than the rest do. So every gathering matters, every day of training, every match, even these, these Nations League games are not what the U.S. would have scheduled in, in this window. I think they'd want to get more elite opponents. But, you know, the, the reason that we're, we're maybe playing teams that are, are not exactly like who you're going to see in the, in the World Cup or that everyone's sort of having to, to, to jerry-rig this as best they can because it's very difficult. To just, uh, uh, drop the phone. Sorry, drop the phone. Uh, uh, it's just <laughs> easy, hard to get games uh, scheduled as well. You know, we're all, we've all been in this COPE environment for the better part of two years. It's a, it's a good point. I mean, when you're seeing the World Cup and you're all excited, you're like, okay, great, Group B, the U.S., which is really could be Group A because they're playing on the opening day in this compacted World Cup where, you know, four games a day, which is going to be quite the – it's oh, that's going to – I don't know what we're going to do. That's going to take a – that's going to leave a mark. It's going to leave a mark trying <laughs> to see as much games as possible. But if they were Canada and they were in Group F, you're right, it gives them an extra two, three days, and obviously they get to build into that a little bit. So there are a lot of challenges with, with regards to all of that. And, but you mentioned a competitive balance. I, I'm intrigued to see how this World Cup will play out. Because it's in Qatar, I, I think it's going to inconvenience a lot of teams and maybe some more than others. Maybe it allows a country that was unexpected to kind of to get through. Maybe it's the United States. But I saw that in the World Cup in Russia. It was a heavy European World Cup. Six of eight teams made the quarterfinals. It t- to me, it takes a little bit of the fun because it started to feel like the Euros, four European semifinalists. And that's not a really a World Cup, but it is. So I think maybe, and it's not the same as a South Korea-Japan World Cup where you had Senegal and South Korea and the U.S. make great runs. But with the competitive balance, the, the unknown of how this World Cup's going to look like, maybe some of the big European teams not happy with some of the arrangements. Do you get the feeling that it could be a little more open? I, I, I will admit, I hope so. Um, and I think <laughs> you don't believe it, though. <laughs> because, uh, as you mentioned, you know, when you look back at some of the sort of, um, you know, non-European or South American tournaments, the tournaments that are held sort of a, way, a little bit out, of, out into the periphery of world soccer, which is obviously, you know, globalization has, has changed our, our concept of that significantly. But um, oftentimes that opens the door a little bit for outsiders and, and um, I mean, we can go back and forth about this because it's so subjective, right? You could argue also that uh, that the Gulf states have been so aggressive in uh, cultivating um, off-season camps, you know, your big European clubs and big national teams coming over there to play exhibitions and hold winter training camps and that sort of thing. So you could certainly make a case maybe that, that, that there will be some, some familiarity among some teams and some calibers of players, and maybe more so than others. Um, I mean, it's, it's also fascinating just to consider this is all happening in a, in a country the size of Connecticut. And most of the games are, are, are happening in stadiums concentrated even more so in a, you know, a smaller urban area. So uh, things that were significant factors uh, in Brazil 2014, for example, I think for a number of teams, maybe, maybe fewer, but definitely some teams in Russia as well, just having to deal with the sheer scale uh, of, a, of a big event scattered across a large country, all that sort of is out the window. And it's a different set of, of strengths and weaknesses and challenges and, and advantages. Um, so it is, it's really intriguing to, to, to look at this. And, and, uh, and, you know, it's sort of a test tube World Cup in the sense that billions has been spent just on the infrastructure specifically to host this game, right? So, you know, will the pitches all play the same? I mean, that, that's been a real issue in some places. That there were, there's multiple uh, World Cups that have had, you know, a one pitch or a few pitches get known as being bad or certain weather conditions. I mean, when, when we're playing in 2026 across North America, you look at the diversity of locales, it's going to be, it's going to be, I think, inevitably influential on some level. And this is the opposite of that. So, so all these things, I mean, it's, it, it really is fascinating. And, um, and, and I think we'll, uh, we'll, we'll see whether to, uh, you know, the, the idea of watching these mini games is one thing, right? There's, there's some people who have real hopes that you could actually go to three World Cup games in one day <laughs> this situation, which is which is crazy, right? And maybe it, maybe the sheer pack packed number of people uh, in Qatar will, will make that impossible functionally. But all these sort of new areas that we're uh, we're, we're getting into. Somebody, uh, ha- if they can try that, has got to document it and uh, make a, a really good post World <laughs> Cup movie. And by the way, I don't know if there is a book. You mentioned this earlier about the two World Cup bids at once and how it all played out and 
will they do that again? It was it was really messy. And I, I, you'd have to have a chapter of whoever was at Fox who complained about the fact that there was a Qatari World Cup, that they have to do the winner, that they got the 2026 broadcast rights of the World Cup, which ended up being a North American World Cup. It's uh, that's just a huge bonanza. So uh, well done for for complaining. Complaining pays off a lot of the times. Right. If People you just left money on the table, I mean, that you just not bitch, and moan, <laughs> bitch and moan and put a bunch of money in a briefcase across the board. Things happen. <laughs> I don't know if that's how it worked, but that's how I envisioned it. And I also envisioned uh, Connecticut hosting a World Cup. So thanks a lot. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I spent eight years there and I, I just I just don't know. It'd be Rentschler Field to be very busy. Maybe a nice park, <laughs> maybe a nice park in Danbury for a saudi arabia yeah, cameroon college facilities to use that's, that's an exciting uh <laughs> but that's that's here. the thing i think of connecticut i think of these huge stadiums there that are going to be built it's uh i can't even fathom it but i'm looking forward to seeing it and we'll see it here come up november i'll talk about the u.s group but i guess it's good to do it in chronological order well let's talk about the uruguay game um it was it was it was in, it was a hard watch. Things didn't really click into place, but it, it, it's the kind of game that if it was a World Cup game, which it isn't, and you walk away against a team like that with a scoreless tie, the U.S. would be doing high fives afterwards. So there were things that we take away. There were some interesting selections, not too many. They kept maybe the interesting selection was many of the same players playing or starting the game versus Morocco and then Uruguay, which to me says that maybe Greg Berhalter's got his starting 11 coming into view with a few little pieces here that he might add based on injury for guys that weren't there. Sergio Desk, Chris Richards, Gio Reyna, to name a few. But he has to be pretty close because of what we said about these games being so important to having not only his, let's say, 27-man squad determined. I think he spoke to Taylor Twelman ahead of Morocco, and he said he had like 19. And he probably got that number up to 2021 20, by now. But also feeling out how the starting 11 is going to look because you won't have this many dress rehearsals moving up to that. So, I mean, there are some questions. Uh, I, a lot of people are obviously talking about Joe Scally, and he, he, had a, he had a horror show. There's no, no other way to put it or to describe it. Um, Sean Johnson came in and maybe made things interesting with the goalkeeper as if he could get on the plane to Qatar, even though he wasn't originally picked. He got in there because Zach Steffen withdrew. But what do we take from the what do we take from both these games or this in particular? We know there's the issue at number nine. There still has to be a competition. There's the issue at who plays alongside Walker Zimmerman, who starts at goalie, who's the backup left back. It's a shorter list, but it's still pretty lengthy. Are we close to how it's going to look come November 21st? I, I think so. And, and you know, again, to, to uh, talking about wrenches in the works, right? It, it's the, the default traditionally is 23 player roster. It, it, Bearhalter and others have uh, said that they have been given sort of promising hints, uh, but not ironclad commitments from FIFA that it will grow to 26 players for this year's tournament in light of all these other, you know, COVID and these other factors um, to, to give uh, coaches a few more options. And so think about those three spots, right? There's, there's three spots hanging in the balance that may not even be available, much less uh, the competition to make the final cut. So it's, um, it, it's a, it's a really, it's a, it's a difficult process for coaches. I think it's some of the most dramatic, uh, stressful moments and, and joyful moments, I would imagine, too, in, in a player's career. Um, and, and again, you know, we, you, you think also about the fact that those things would be happening a, a month or so ahead of, of the, the first game. And then you would have, you know, players would have this time to, to spend time together, to get fit, to shake off any knocks from the club season. Some of these guys may get basically a week um, after the end of their responsibilities at their clubs. So you're going to be it's 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 more like um, these you know midseason tournaments that have been relatively rare. Like if you think about the Af Afcon, some of the Africa Cup of Nations, where players are sort of jetting straight in from from a busy club schedule uh, in Europe or whatnot. So so and then and then depending on MLS uh, the playoffs, you know you could have players winning MLS Cup and then and then jetting off. To the Middle East, you know, in a matter of days after that, and so I think that the there's going to be people sweating, coaches and players alike, sweating fitness, sweating injuries. Uh, we've already had the Miles Robinson injury, which is, you know, has clearly emotionally affected the group. They feel terrible for this guy who's really well loved, uh, mainstay member of the eleven, and now you know th that's another spot that needs to be filled. I think these past two games suggested that Aaron Long has pole position. Um, probably by a safe margin at the moment, at least uh, for, for that starting job. 
uh, vacated by Robinson's injury. Uh, but the, the, you know, there's those kind of things. I, in looking at these these two friendlies, I would say that there's somewhere between eight and and eleven guys who've shown they need to be on the field as much as possible. Uh, setting aside, you know, particular tactical matchups, um, dealing with fitness concerns or injuries or or caution accumulations, that sort of thing in a tournament environment. So when, when, as the, in some ways the team is picking itself in the sense of guys that you just, you know, you want to have out on the pitch against most opponents. Um, but then that still leaves Bearhalter and his staff with some really, some really interesting calls. Um, and then you, you think a little deeper, right? Joe Scali is a good example. He's, he's typically a, really a right back. I mean, he's clearly right for the player. That's his, his first preferred role. Um, he sort of turned heads by, by doing well in that, sort of deputized left back role for Munchen Gladbach in the Bundesliga this past season. But, you know, doing it at the international level in a team you're still relatively new to with new concepts of play is, is another matter, right? So um, he, he is taking a lot of stick. I think he's getting a, 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 getting a little bit more stick maybe than he deserves given his age, given the circumstances. Um, but the, as you mentioned, that is an excellent uh, team in terms of Uruguay, not just their quality, but I think their, uh, their intelligence, that cleverness, um, that professionalism they have. I mean, you could see, for example, it wasn't that that Scali was bad the whole game. It was that he had a little bit of a rocky start at the beginning. He was figuring out some some subtle spacing issues and and getting his feet. And Uruguay is a smart enough team, packed with players who see that they can sniff out even a fleeting weakness like that. And they went at him and forced him to play his way through it and and expose him a few times in the process. Right. So, Berhalter talked about the, that being a uh, uh, a. a a tribute to, to, to Scali and a sign of his adaptation, but it's also an example of how, how unforgiving it can be mm. in these caliber games. So, so really, really fascinating in that light. But um, I think the, the left back spot uh, is very clearly going to be Jedi Robinson. Um, the back four is, is at the moment, I think we, we can say that long and, and Zimmerman are, are the guys there at center back for, for the time being right back's a little more open. We'll see if Sergio Dest uh, is, is, can, can get and stay fit in order to t- handle that role, which I think in a perfect world he would have. Something similar can be said of Gio Reyna, who you definitely want to have, I think, in the 11 in a perfect world. But how, is he going to be fit anytime soon? Is he going to be 90 minutes fit anytime soon and have the rhythm that you would want coming off of uh, his club season? This is just the, the, the variables multiply really quickly in, in this environment for guys like Greg Berhalter. And that's why I urge fans uh, who are frustrated with what they see try to approach it from that mentality. This is a coach who's dealing with so many variables and he can only, he, he, he has to focus on a, a set number at a time. It's a great point. And with Scally, it's, it's so late in the game. I mean, it's, it's almost an untenable situation, but he might still make it. I, I think that mm-hmm. was probably make it a little more difficult the way uh, it played out because they do need someone to cover Anthony Robinson. There's talk, maybe it's Sergio Dest who shoots over. And I just, you know, that would seem like it would clear so many headaches if there was a, ideally true left-footed left back who could fill that void if something happens to Anthony Robinson you know God willing this team plays five games six games I'm not getting I'm getting carried away but let's say they go four or five games you know having the same left back and all of those is kind of uh is naive it's hard so uh well, not, not so a good, good example, back, Max, back. Of, of the kind of um the kind of compromises that coaches often talk themselves into you know, Kellen Acosta has been a is a versatile player who is a right-footed player, but who has shown himself to be comfortable playing on the left side of defense over his pro career. So I, I think you could very much yep. see a scenario where where neither Scally, you know, nor I mean, you know, he doesn't make the cut, and maybe one or two other guys who are in the mix, like someone like George Bello doesn't, because Bearhalter and his staff kind of convince themselves that they can they can manage something if, if something goes wrong. But you're 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 always sort of trying to pull a a queen size blanket over a king size bed in these situations, even if you have the 26 as opposed to the 23 slots. The, the frustrating it's not frustrating, but it's the part that there's so many good young left backs in the U.S. system, but they're not quite ripe yet. Whether it's Scally or Bello or um, Pared- uh, John Tolkien, New York Rebels, Tol- watch for sure. John yeah. Tolkien. That's another guy you wish you would get a sniff. There's something about the way he handles himself that feels like they maybe he has that that confidence. But we'll have to wait for the next cycle. Plus, I'd like to see that blonde hair, that Ric Flair do, <laughs> flapping around in the Qatari wind. Uh, that'd be pretty good. Who knows? All of a sudden, you're you're watching a quarterfinal of the World Cup, and Tolkien comes in there to rescue the day. But uh, 
that's one part. I mean, there's also, you know, Aaron Long has become the manifestation of the disappointment, the MLS poster guy for the the U.S. soccer fans that kind of chip away at that. And we know there it is because we all dealt with it when we, we were watching the game Sunday and when we woke up Monday morning and got on social media. And it's, it's unfair because, you know, Aaron Long is a player that, you know, had interest from big European clubs when I was at move to West Ham. And we shouldn't dim- diminish what the contribution of these MLS clubs are. And it's bailing us out in many positions because it's guys getting games. And put, put yourself in the situation if Aaron Long wasn't available right now what you would do. Maybe they go to John Brooks, which obviously that's something that Burhalter is reluctant to do, but by necessity, there's no one else. I'd love to see Chris Richards start there because he looks so talented during the qualifying and he partnered well for the most part with Walker Zimmerman when they had a chance in the last few games, but Aaron long, I mean, I, I look at him and I'm just, it, it makes me comfortable. Does he look great back there in those two games? Not necessarily. You could see he's working it out, but he's a guy who can do a lot. And I'm just happy he's there as opposed to looking around for another option. He's a confident guy. He could score goals off set pieces. Good, but pretty good with his feet. Still a good athlete, even though he ruptured his Achilles. But uh, I, I, I think people have to get used to the fact that you might see him walk out there for that first game against Wales. Yeah, I mean, he, you know, the door uh, for Miles Robinson to walk through and, and seize a, a clear starting role, um, you know, what, a year or so ago was open because uh, Aaron Longen had the exact same injury himself. Yeah, it's a um, great point. And, and, you know, was looking at the, you know, checking the calendar, counting the days, really sweating whether he was going to be ready to, to, to play and perform at a high level and get back into the mix in time. So, you know, there is, uh, I, I, I know it's, um, the, the fan base is bigger than ever. It's more passionate than ever. It, that, what, it, you know, some, some being more neurotic than ever co- co- collectively can kind of feed into that as well. But I, I urge people to go back and look at the history. Um, there, there's a long list of really talented players, um, some of the best players you've ever produced, who through, through simple rotten luck and, and strange timing and, and quirks of fate weren't able to play in a World Cup or didn't play in the number of World Cups that their talent and their quality merited. And then there's guys that make these late runs that, that get lucky or are good at the right times and um and and suddenly find themselves starting massive games i mean pablo Mastrini's career is yes. uh is illustrative in that regard and, and then the other side of it chris armis was absolutely one of the best players in the u.s producer in that time period but had a few ill-timed you know significant injuries and um and, and missed out and that's it's just brutal but it's it's one of the things that make uh, the world cup uh, such a special thing yeah it's so disappointing i remember that 2002 world cup i actually traveled with the u.s team to uh, Sicily, which is one of the tr- work trips of a lifetime. And they played Italy. And Chris Armas was marking Francesco Totti. And I, you, I know people won't believe it when I say this. He had Totti in his back pocket. He couldn't, he <laughs> owned it. I was watching, I, is this really happening? And Armas was at the playing the best at his position. Only a few in that, that role were better than him. He was playing that well. And then the injury happened. And then history pivoted. Uh, others got the chance and 2002 was the best world cup performance in us history that's the way it goes and you, as you mentioned there's a lot of guys that you your heart just drops and miles robinson is the the latest of those there's also players that benefit it and this aaron long situation is is incredible because yeah he the timing could not have been any more perfect he was just bending ready to come back from the injury he was just cleared he got a few games with the red bulls and then bang he's in there so that's one position uh the number nine um, I don't want to look at what the expected goals of Jesus Ferreira is. It's probably not great. But, but I watched the games and look, when Haji Wright came in, I saw, I like Haji Wright and he's, if he gets in the right position, he could be dangerous, but because he doesn't do what Ferreira does and maybe it was a tough opponent, there, there weren't those opportunities cycling through where Ferreira would come out and be back his back to goal and combine with Pulisic or Wea where those inter would interchange and create openings or opportunities. And that's why I think Fadeda probably has the inside track much like Aaron Long does. Uh, Haji Wright seems like the second option. Everyone else has kind of fallen off the back tire with regard to the number nine. Maybe Ricardo Pepe makes a resurgence. I'd love to see it. And I think he'll do better in Augsburg coming up than what he did going out. But uh it's yeah, I think I think he'll get a shot. I think yeah. anybody who's scoring goals in the next five months is gonna get a good <laughs> front look. of the line. 
Right. But do you think they, they do, they still play with a guy who you would classify as a number nine? Cause I look at some lineups coming out and in an attempt to get your best 11 players, maybe they play Weah there, which gives you space for Aronson. Maybe you play Gio Reyna in a weird, more uh, or Polisic there where you drop some guys a little further back. It seems very late in the game to do a systematic overhaul, mm-hmm. but the, you, you have a problem with getting these best players, whether it's, McKinney, Adams, Musa, and Aronson, Reyna. There's like seven guys for there's like eight guys for six spots. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is which is why I I noted the other night on Twitter in 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 the multiple times that Bearhalter and or Tim Weah has been asked uh, about the idea of him playing as a as an out and out striker as a number nine, which he has done at club level in the not too so distant past. It's it, it appears that that's simply not being considered, um, and I think. There's been a few others. I mean, he even tried Sebastian Leggett in a sort of semi-false nine role uh, gosh, a year, year and a half ago, something like that. Um, so he, he's clearly batting around some, some different combinations of personnel and, and roles and, stru- and tactical structures. Um, but that's the one that I would love to see. And I, it seems like he just, I guess it's just that Berhalter really likes him um, along that left wing, you know, or sorry, that right wing able to, you know, to get to the edge or to, or to cut in. Um, you know, one of the most naturally talented players. So again, I'd like to see him as a nine, but, but I don't, I don't know that that's going to happen. I would be very surprised if Haji Wright does not start uh, against Grenada on Friday or, and, or I should say possibly both games, depending on how he performs in the first one uh, against uh, El Salvador um, the following week. So uh, I think he's due for a start um, and, and, uh, and see if he can get a little bit of an understanding going in a match environment. Um, because you know there there's clearly a good chemistry with Haji Wright. He's a familiar face. To he's part of that the '98 crop that that has Pulisic and uh, and so many other the, the influential players in this group. Um, so guys really like him. He's he's done it at club level. Um, still waiting to see him get get a real run uh, from the start. So hopefully that happens on Friday um, for all of us, if only for evaluation purposes. Uh, and then who knows? Things start to get really um, start to get really subjective because. It's just like the goalkeeper job. At the end of the day, you know, Berhalter is a data guy. Um, they try to be objective and, and, and data oriented in, in how they evaluate things. But I think it's still going to come down to what they feel about giving guys. And right now, Ferreira seems to be the guy they feel good about. They have that confidence in. They love his contribution to the collective. Um, but it was interesting to watch him against maybe the probably the best team he's ever played against at senior level in Uruguay, how his movement was responded to, tracked, defended against it was um it was good and i I think he's again uh fans and pundits tend to fixate on the the chances that that go begging in in his case too too often lately um but the 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 coherent the the coherent whole was was interesting as well it's true it's you you put the hot hand but there is no hot hand it's jordan pfock who we saw didn't but there's no hot hand so uh jesus ferreira's forgiven a little bit man but you just wish you could tuck one of those chances they were good and they were well taken he didn't miss badly it's it's just the way it goes. But could you imagine Haji Wright gets a couple of goals against Grenada, gets a goal against El Salvador, and that's what puts him in to starting in a World Cup game? It doesn't it, it doesn't seem so crazy when I say it like that, but who knows? It's it's a it's a different World Cup buildup than we ever saw. You mentioned goalkeepers, and you mentioned how Greg Berhalter might go to the go to the end here, looking at the data. Sean Johnson entered the conversation here at the very least to make the plane or to feature in some way, shape or form. Yeah. I, uh, I wrote about that yesterday. Uh, I think it's, it's again, a really interesting uh, situation, just uh, strictly in terms of personal storylines. The guy has been around the national different levels of the national team for a decade now, more than a decade. You, you can think back to him being prominently involved in the, uh, the 2012 uh, Olympic qualifying cycle. He was kind of one of those, you know, wonderkind type type guys who who, who made it to uh, the first team at his MLS club pretty early, um, and then and then you know really kind of drifted in the background, always in the player pool. I think it was in the mix, and in in this past qualifying cycle, he was definitely part of the, I guess the emotional uh, group in the sense of uh, you know the respected you know backup goalkeeper guy, right? But but it didn't seem like anybody in or outside the program was really considering him as a legitimate contender. For, for real minutes to start. And I, I think now we, we have to at least have that. I and mean, we'll see if he gets another run out in these two games. 
Um, you know, we'll see how things go at the club level, but he's done everything you could ask. Um, he's waited for his chance. He won, went and won an MLS cup um, in a, in a, uh, a club where the, the principles of play are very similar to a bear halter likes. He's shown he can, you know, he can play out of the back. Um, he's, you know, 13 year pro now. He's the, I think has a, has a gravitas as one of the older guys in the, uh, on the squad. So, you know, why not? Why, why should we not uh, talk about him? Because if, if by, by uh, late October, turn of November, he's the only one in the, say the top five, six of the goalkeeping death chart, who's playing every yeah. day or every week, I should say for his club and doing so at a high level, that's got to count for something. The criticism was that he may not be able to play out of the back, but man, he was hitting these balls to the defensive midfielder with with one hundred percent accuracy. So I mean, and you, that's a tough pass to make, but he made it look pretty easy. So people who say that he's not good at that really have to take a closer look. Is he uh, is he world class at, at that level, or like Allison or one of those guys who could do that? No, but he certainly shows that he's. He can make it. And I love the fact that he showed up at this camp without any ill will because he wasn't selected originally and he went about his business and he got paid off with a start here against Uruguay. Got a clean sheet in the process too. I think we got a pretty good 11, Charles. Is it? I, I'm going to say Matt Turner for now. Jedi, Long, Zimmerman, Dest, McKinney, Adams, Musa, Pulisic, Ferreira, Weah. That doesn't get Aronson in there, which is a big, that's a big miss because he's he's on the, the best trajectory of any American, I would say. And I'm not going to put rain in there just because I want to make sure he's well for a long stretch before he even gets close to this. I don't even want to put his name there. Cause I don't want to jinx it. I don't want, I, I want him to get well and make sure he can get, because when we start talking about projecting him, it's not realistic because the injuries, the injury situation is just that dire. I think, I think you're going to want in, impact players off the bench. And if he can get to a physical level, where he can do that. I mean, you saw how he changed the game in the positive way for the U.S. in the qualifier against Mexico at Azteca. We've we've seen the, the sort of uniquely um, edgy personality. I think he's got. He's got this edge to him that that um, you know opponents it it draws the respect of opponents and uh, teammates alike, and it just distinguishes him. It's it's been all about his body right now. Um, you know, I think he'll be given every chance to show that he's, you know, that the it, that is not an excessive risk to to put a roster spot on him. Um, but in and you know the the other thing too is you know Bearhalter is a, a nuts and bolts X's and O's type guy, and we saw um, I urge everybody to go read Joseph Lowry's uh, work over at Backheel about some of the tactical tweaks and and little build out uh, shapes and cues and and and, and adjustments and rifts that that they've tried out in these past few games. Because I think he's trying to figure out, you know, what what works best in, in combination of personnel and spacing, and then and 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 holding that up against the opponents, and what he expects to face tactically from the opposition in Cutter, and uh, and you know, I mean, it's very possible that Pulisic won't be able or best suited to suit every game. People are saying something similar about Weston McKinney, um, Aronson. I think you're going to want him on the field, but there may be certain uh, opponents that he makes more sense against than others. And so, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's so many little wrinkles here and it's, it's going to be fascinating to see how, how it all shakes out. I mean, again, you, you talked about the O2 run um, that remains the best world cup the U S has ever had. Uh, and Bruce arena was sort of, he, he pulled out a new formation riff on the fly uh, to beat Mexico in the round of 16. He moved Claudio arena around in different roles, different positions, had to, had to call on his depth. So, you know, on some level, even the guys that you think are very unlikely to see real minutes, sometimes they get shoved into the spotlight and, and it can make the difference between uh, between a, you know, famous victory or or uh, an early exit. So there, there's there's so many different little nuances um, that we're all going to be talking about. And, and, and I imagine arguing about uh, for, for right up until that first game and, and actually through the through the tournament as well, I guess. That's the best part is the arguing. I enjoy arguing. I don't like it to be nice. And so I like the, the, the interactions that we have on social media with the growing U.S. soccer fandom. Group, we know the group it's, now. Uh, Wales you know, beat. Uh, we, 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 it's relevant, man. This is, this is, these are the, um, the, the pride and, uh, and peril of, of relevance and, and growing the, the fan base and growing the market. And, um, you know, social media can be a little dysfunctional at times, but it's, it's also a, a great place where we can hash this kind of stuff out and, and learn so uh so for for all the uh all the reply guys you know i think there's i think there's 
there's more good than bad. <laughs> careful, Charles. I'll start arguing with you. Be careful, man. <laughs> I'll bring it. Um, the group is set. So now the, whale, the, the Welsh ended the Ukrainian dream of making the World Cup, which uh, it, was, it was great to watch it. But, it, you know, it was uh, it was hard to imagine Ukraine finishing that job just because of everything in their path. It's amazing they made it that far. So Wales make I, it. I, I hate that it go, that it, it's decided the, in, with the goal that it was. I, I had yeah. a feeling Gareth Bale uh, would would be involved in crushing Ukrainian dreams. I just just seemed like a moment he wouldn't pass up but to do it off a uh, you know a deflective uh, de- defensive header in a one nil. God, I just I wish uh, I wish it had, had gone a little differently because I, I feel for uh, for everybody involved. Um, but you know that that's and some would say that the U.S. dodged a bullet by by not having to face this. Um, you know, global uh, underdog, uh, amazing human interest story. Um, but then that means you got to face Gareth Bale, who's going to be one of the most talented individuals in, in, in Qatar, you know, regardless of what he's gone through at his club, regardless of his injury history, he's, he's in the World Cup now. And, uh, and that's, you know, just like facing Cristiano Ronaldo back in 2014, um, the U.S. were the better team uh, against Portugal in that group stage match for most of the time. They seem to have the win locked up and a, a moment magic from Cristiano uh, and everything changes. And that's the kind of danger that uh, that Gareth Bale possesses. So uh, it adds, a, as you said, yeah, it's a it's an intriguing tactical matchup. But then you get into the personality of it. Uh, it's it's going to be fun. See, I, I thought it would rather have faced wales but now i get the feeling i maybe would rather face ukraine because the way the u.s played an open game against morocco and to a lesser degree uruguay where they got their they got their feet on the ball and they they won some one-on-ones and they found the space uh more so against morocco obviously with the three goals but the welsh that felt like a Concacaf <laughs> pitfall with gareth bale at the end of it which makes it even more challenging and and there was many times in that game where I could see I replaced the Ukrainians with uh, the United States and I could see U.S. applying pressure, 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 sucker punch goal, Wales squeeze you out, U.S. start the World Cup the worst possible way. It's not out of the realm of possibility. I know they're going to be the favorites. I say that's the most important game for the U.S. to win that first one because it, it'll set you on course. If you lose that game, you're it's probably over. Um, you'd have to get a result against the English um, who are going to be one of the two or three favorites to win it. But uh, Wales, England, Iran, not the hardest path for the U.S. They earned that because of their ranking, but one that uh, they have to manage the right way. When you look at that, how confident are you that they uh, can emerge from that group? Ooh, uh, <laughs> not that I, confident. I, I have to say, I mean, I've, I've, you know, thinking back to the, the senior World Cups um, that I've watched and covered over the years, um, you know, dating back to my, uh, my, my childhood adolescence, um, you know, in 94, and then thinking about, uh, you know, the, the challenges of groups like this that the youth national teams have dealt with at World Cups, even some of the players like, like Pulisic, you know, Pulisic's generation, uh, if I remember right, went three and out um, at, at the U-17 World Cup, playing very well, but just, you know, meeting the wrong set of opponents in the wrong order. Uh, you know, the, the, these tournaments are... Uh, in a statistical terms, they're really a lousy evaluating metric. It's a really lousy sample size. You know, there's things are things are so random. Uh, there's so many vectors involved. Um, I think the U.S. could play very, very well and go home uh, with a three and out and and feel feeling bewildered and betrayed by by how it all goes. Um, but I think again, like you said, you, you've got to be. And you know, I thought so. One, one thing I, I wanted to mention about the Uruguay game. Um, something I didn't hear until this morning, but in one of the availabilities in the mix zone, Walker Zimmerman said, you know, we were approaching this game like our third group stage game. We, we, we wanted to not That's lose interesting. above all. And I thought that was, that was interesting. They're, they're trying to game plan that way, trying to foster that mentality. So, you, you know, you give them credit. A friendly can never replicate a, a tournament game. But if you have that, that, that mindset, you have a goalkeeper who you trust who can bail you out. Ideally, you have a a hot finisher who can be clinical in front of goal with a, a, a limited number of chances. Those are the little things that, that matter so much in, in those small sample sizes. So, um, so I think, you know, we'll be, there'll be tons of hype around England. There'll be the geopolitical sort of intrigue around Iran, and then there'll be the Gareth Bale show and the, the whale sort of collective and their, their defensive rigidity. So there's, it's going to be the, the way you manage the, the twists and turns of that tournament is, is, can be just absolutely massive. 
I think it's, it's, I think it's pretty close to what the U.S. W- can do in this World Cup. I think worst case, they do go three and out, but they'll be competitive. They're not going to get blown out of these games. It'll be by a small margin that they don't advance. I mean, Let's if you get- look at it this way, if you don't lose, if you find a way to not, to, to not um, you know, get beat – then all you need really is is a W, right? If you just get one win. You're talking about the Welsh game. Just don't lose that one. Yeah, let's see that. Yeah, I mean, so for example, I think, you know, uh, if, if you can get a draw out of the England match and then get a uh, three points against either Wales or Iran, uh, then the, you're it, not guaranteed, right? There's all these different permutations, but you're in a really good shape there with, um, let's, let's say, five points, much less uh, seven points. You know, that's, that's um, I think that's the key. That's, that's why the defensive relationships are so important and that's why they really need a goalkeeper who leaves nothing to chance who doesn't let you know that doesn't let up anything soft who's ready to play who's locked in so you know again that's as much as as tired as we may be of of uh, going back and forth about the goalkeeping and the number nine role uh, you know it's it's the it's the boxes right the boxes are where where the small margins get really important they could probably get through with four points, but it depends how they get those four points. So we shall see. Uh, we can't you don't wait. Put yourself in that spot, you know. So. <laughs> don't don't be four, and you got the other team with four, and then they beat you, and they have a better goal differential, and you're going home. Got to make that round of sixteen. Charles Bohm, uh, fantastic stuff. Read his. Uh, go onto his social media handles. Read uh, his great articles. He has ones there about the U.S. men's national team being part of the change with gun control. I love what Christian Pulisic said. Um, we know there's other aspects to fixing the problem of gun violence. Uh, this is just a part of it to get these, uh, assault weapons off the street, but it's a starting point. And I like that. I like the fact that he's okay. We're going to do, let's start here. And then we can try and move further, getting weapons off the street, helping people that look like, um, they could be a candidate for, to do something horrible, identifying that. But first things first, we got to do something. I thought that was really cool to see him say that. Yeah, this, this group is, I think, finding their voice. It, it, do not underrate the, the complexity of getting uh, a, a diverse group of players uh, on the same page, or at least to find a, a common set of values that they can stand up for. Apparently, this is a unanimous uh, decision to, you know, and unanimous support for the letter they released yesterday, urging members of Congress to advance uh, the gun legislation that's currently uh, on Capitol Hill uh, in process. I, I think. You know, we're not going to see legislation passed anything like what what President Joe Biden has advocated for, um, but at least some progress could potentially be made in the next week or so here uh, over here. I speak to you from D.C. across town at Capitol Hill. They're they're talking and let's hope uh, maybe uh, something gets done. And, and every little bit helps when you have a group like the USMNT speaking out and showing the bravery that goes with that wading into a complex emotional issue. And and I think these guys have the the emotional maturity now. They're they're gonna there's gonna be more of these kind of things. They sounds like they're gonna have some gestures or some some statements in mind when it comes to Cutter's human rights situation. And and there may be other topics. And I think it's it's nice to see them stick the themselves out there a bit to, uh, to to be part of these conversations. It's it's not an easy job. We saw Canada getting involved with uh, their stance for the women's game too, which caused the cancellation of the Panama game and. It's uh, it's tremendous, but you focusing on the World Cup, you could see what these players are putting on their shoulders, and it's something to be uh, certainly moved by. Charles, great chatting with you, man. Uh, I, I I I love following you and everyone who covers the U.S. men's national team. It makes me smarter, and uh, this conversation obviously made me a little smarter. I'll probably steal your your ideas and put them in tweet form and take them for my own credit. So there you have it. Good, nice work for me. Max, we love better. your calls too. I'm just, I'm so glad that, um, that you're calling the games of one of the highest scoring teams in MLS. We need those gold <laughs> calls, man. The, 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 the what a good iconic man. voice of, of not only my, my younger years, but now my adulthood. I'm so glad you're still, you're still calling the, the, these, these goals with your dulcet tones. Thank you. <laughs> you may feel really old, but that's okay. I am old. Charles, <laughs> gotcha. appreciate it. Gotcha. Charles joining me in the business end, joining us in D.C. We'll be back with Stoppage Time, where we'll talk about the best stories to watch for in the World Cup in Qatar. I've already gone on record in saying that I think this World Cup in Qatar, because it's different, will provide a World Cup to remember. Because it's in Qatar because it's in the winter months. 
that tends to push against the normal favorites. And if we want chaos, I think there's the possibility of getting that. What is chaos in a World Cup? It's teams outside of Europe and in South America, not named Brazil and Argentina, and I guess Uruguay, making a run, making a deep run. Matchups that you wouldn't expect to see in a, a, a knockout stage, like USA-Mexico in 2002. Where were, I mean, some crazy ones. Was it, was it we had the semifinal in Bulgaria versus Sweden, even though those are European teams. Uh, South Korea making a semifinal, whatever it might be. A story that will get the eyes of the world firmly planted on Qatar if they weren't already there. Because of the nature of that World Cup, I think the European teams are going to find it much harder where it seemed pretty easy for them playing in Russia four years ago. So we turn to the, re- the, the areas, the, the, the federations that have promised success and have not. And at the top of that list, it's Africa. And we've waited for the African breakthrough. We came so close a couple times. In 1990 with Cameroon, made the quarterfinals, were up on England. I think it was two goals. England came back, made the semis. Ghana in 2010, making the quarterfinals, had the penalty to beat Uruguay after the Luis Suarez red card, missed it. Uruguay moves on to the semifinals. We used to say that back in the 90s, early 2000s. One day an African team is going to win it, but it feels like we're getting further and further away from that being true. Perhaps this is the time. I just don't know if the group of African teams is strong enough. The best bet is Senegal. They uh, they obviously have the star power in Koulibaly and Mane. But can they get through? They're in that Group A, which is with Qatar, Ecuador, the Netherlands. I think money says they'll probably finish second there. I would tend to think it. But maybe they can finish first. If they can finish first, that would be a good option. But I, it's hard to say that they would go further. It's, it, it, I believe it will happen. I just don't know if this group of African teams allow it. I liked Morocco a lot. And then I sold them against the U.S. And I was like, I just maybe just hold your enthusiasm. They are in Group F with Belgium, Croatia, and Canada. And I said earlier that with the Nations League discussion that Belgium and Croatia are on the back end. So there's a great opportunity for Morocco. And maybe they seize it. The other African teams. You have... Over in, uh, what am I looking at? I'm sorry here. Over in Group G, you have Cameroon, which is with Brazil, Serbia, Switzerland. Group D, you have France, either Peru, Australia, the UAE, Denmark, and Tunisia. Maybe, but Tunisia is probably the weakest of the African teams, right? Mm-hmm. And then Portugal, Ghana, Uruguay, Korea, Republic. Just don't see it happening there. But that'd be a good story, obviously. Maybe something in the Middle East. Maybe Qatar wins the group. That would be interesting. Although, I don't think people know enough about Qatar where it would be that compelling. Obviously, it's a host nation. You have the pushback of some of the issues that over, over you know over uh, overclouded part of the uh, the World Cup effort. The bid, the stadium builds. That could be a very good story. What about England? England finally getting through. This could happen. England getting to the World Cup final, as we saw with the Euros, is a huge story. But is it the biggest story? It is not. The biggest story has really come into view the last couple months. And it is that of Argentina. The last real chance for Lionel Messi. And I know Cristiano Ronaldo and Portugal are there and Portugal should have a good World Cup, but they struggled so much along the way. Had to go through the playoffs. I don't know if they have it in them. Tricky group with Ghana, Uruguay, and Korea Republic. And the thing is, whether you're Ronaldo in Portugal or you're Lionel Messi in Argentina, the team that does well there with the superstar, aging superstar, The one that has a better collective approach is going to find a way. I don't know if we're there with Portugal, but I've seen it with my eyes with Argentina. I have never seen a team rally around their star quite like that crew. And this past weekend, Argentina played Estonia. Lionel Messi 
scored all five goals. I was watching them again. They were really good goals. And the delight of his teammates coming up to, uh, to celebrate that moment with him. It seems like he has a real good connection developing with Rodrigo De Paul, who to me is in the discussion for most important player for Argentina. When you look at the 11, they have the stars. They have guys that could make a difference, like Paolo Dybala, who probably won't play a lot starting. Angel Di Maria, also on the back end. Julian Alvarez is the wonder boy. He'll get some minutes, I'm sure. Papu Gomez. And then it's just this collective group of guys that you may not rate. Lautaro Martinez, how can I forget about him? Uh, otherwise, it's guys that are plugging away. Not much accolades. Like DePaul, I don't want to diminish him. But, you know, when you think of great midfielders, his name doesn't come into play. Although I think we probably dropped the ball on that. Defenders like Germán Pesela, who's, you know, good, solid guy. Playing in, uh, in Spain. Lisandro Martínez. Other guys are going to rely a lot on Gio de Celso playing crazy minutes. Uh, Paredes, who's not with this group, but I imagine we'll, we'll get in there. Guido Rodriguez. So this group of team, when you see the lineup cards for Argentina, you're like, what? But they have bought into this, did not lose a game in the qualifiers. They won the Copa America, and now they're just ripping through these teams as they did with Italy 3-zip and Estonia 5-zip. It is the best story out there to see Lionel Messi and this team that would jump on a sword for him. And that's basically what it is. There is an admiration unlike we've ever seen. It is very possible. I want to see that more than anything. And I know I've had, my, I've had my criticisms of Lionel Messi, but this is the Lionel Messi I always wanted to see. One that allowed the, the team to work, allowed the team to get his pistons running, and then he could be there to do what he does best. Not try and do too much, but have a group of guys that will use him to his best abilities. And that's what we've seen. They're in Group C. They should rip through Group C with Saudi Arabia, Mexico, and Poland. And then they may get a shot at the second in Group D. Then they might get, who knows, they could see the United States a little further down the line. I think they'll have a favorable draw. So Lionel Messi, it could be his time. Count me in as one who would like to see it. There are going to be some good stories that we, we will creep up on us that we don't know, like Costa Rica in 2010. But there is one right there front and center. And you've got to start believing that this Argentina team could be the best we have seen since Maradona was there. And even the Maradona teams, he was such an incredible superstar. They were not, they, they reminded you a bit like this team we see here. The players around him, and I don't want to diminish Oscar Ruggeri or uh, Daniel Passarella, who was a great, or uh, what's his name? The guy who scored the goal, Jorge Buruchaga. These are guys that were good, but not great. You know, when Maradona had Canigia and some of these other guys, or Batistuta playing in those 90s and early 2000s, they, they had a better talent on their team, but they weren't a better team. You could say the same thing about England. They had all the great talent with Lampard and Gerrard and Scholes and Beckham. And, but as a team, they're not better than the one we see now with maybe players that you don't rate as highly. That's why the sport's so great. So England and Argentina, maybe that's what we see at the end. Oh my goodness. Can they make, I guess it's possible. I guess it's possible. If England wins their group and Argentina win their group, I think they would go on opposite sides. So there you go. There's your there's your dream final. Soccer OG. Check out the Soccer OG on YouTube under my name, Max Bretos. Check out the library of Soccer OG podcasts. As always, great to be with you. We'll see you next time as we will continue to recap what happens in the U.S. games. Until then, Placido Domingo. Domingo.